Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. You got your Bibles open to uh, Matthew chapter 5. I want to remind you that before we get into the Word tonight, tonight we have our uh, Fresh Encounter service, our monthly Fresh Encounter service. I know it's Father's Day, and some people are like, well, how come you had it on Father's Day, but you didn't have it on Mother's Day? And it's pretty simple. I'm not messing with mothers, so it's, I'm going to mess with fathers, but not with Mother's Day. So I know what side of my bread is buttered. So um, fathers, we have Father's Day tonight, um, uh, Fresh Encounters, kind of celebration of that. We're talking about the glory of the Father expressed in his uh, way in which he says, um, not unto us in the psalmist, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name give glory. So we're going to talk about the glory of the Father tonight. And then we also have a uh, our first College Park Cooks tonight, which is a kind of a fellowship time after our um, our Fresh Encounter service. Great time just to be able to meet some folks. If you're, if you're new to College Park, great way to connect and to be able to um, find some uh, new relationships. So please come tonight, 6 o'clock, and then our College Park Cooks to follow. Let's pray and get to work here on our text. Father, we are uh, grateful for your word and for the way in which it um, is able to cut a clean and straight line to our hearts and the way in which it is able to um, open us up to what we need to learn and what we need to hear and what we need to see. And I pray today that you would do that again um, by your inspired text, that you would help us to understand the kind of grace that you give us for people and for persecution and that we would heed the call of this uh, great book to uh, get real and to see that Jesus indeed is not only the true Messiah, but he is the Savior of the world meant to invade our hearts and lives in ways that we not only need, but are compelling for the world to see. So Lord, help us today, help me to get this passage right, to emphasize exactly what you want emphasized for your people's benefit today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for our series in Matthew 5 to 7 is Get Real. And essentially it's a call for you to realize that real spirituality is the heart of what Jesus wants and therefore it's the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And this hard-hitting, kind of in-your-face, step-on-your-toes section of Matthew is designed to attack superficial religion. That sense of um, understanding what the Bible says but not really living in light of what it calls us to do. The sermon is the first of Jesus' recorded sermon, and you can think about it as sort of his manifesto as to what he wants real religion to be. Last week I shared with you that we need both the content and the tone of the Sermon on the Mount. We need the content because it deals with the real issues in life that we face all the time. Issues like anger and lust, how to give and how to battle anxiety, uh, how to deal with our judgmental hearts. These are the issues that Jesus penetrates towards and really wants us to focus on in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the content. But I also suggested last week that we need the tone, that the tone of this message is really important because Jesus is calling us to get real, to wake up, to realize that the superficial religion that we often tend towards is not the way that God wants us to live. And so this book is a hard-hitting realization that it's a real possibility we can take the Bible and we can domesticate it. He warns us that we can take the Bible and somehow domesticate it. You know what I mean by domesticate? Domesticate is when you take something wild and you uh, live with it, right? For instance, you domesticate a dog, right? How many of you have a dog? Okay. 
How many of you have a dog that sleeps on a bed? Let me see your hands. All right. Okay, good, good. So I'm not the only one. See, our dog um, thinks she's a member of our family in the same way that our children are. She sleeps on the bed with our boys, and uh, she gets to rotate between the different beds. She never goes up on the bunk bed, but she gets to ro- rotate around. And invariably, when I go there in the morning to wake them up, guess who's got the pillow? The dog does. And she's a big dog. She's about 70 pounds. And sometimes she'll even stretch out her legs, and, and she's pushed kids off the bed before. In fact, um, this dog, I have to remind her all the time, you're a dog. You're a dog. You hear, you exist. This is what domesticate means. You exist to make me happy. You exist to serve me. You exist to be in my world. And if that's not working out, you got a problem, right? So to domesticate means you bring a wild dog or a wild thing into your house and you tame it. In fact, our dog is so domesticated that she thinks she deserves to sleep on a bed. We um, had some friends who watched our dog for us while we were gone for a weekend. And after we left, and she kind of did her old horse, little sad, depressed uh, thing, the, the family was trying to look for her, and they couldn't find her. And they're like, oh, my goodness, we dog's been here like 10 minutes, and we lost her. So they searched all over the yard, couldn't find her, all in the house, couldn't find her. And uh, so then they were like, what do we do? So they walked up into their master bedroom, and uh, there they found our dog on the bed on the husband's pillow. So... <laughs> So we have to remind her all the time, you are a dog. You are domesticated, meaning you've been wild and you've been brought into our home. We've tamed you, or at least we're trying. And see, the problem is, is that what's, that's what we do with the Bible. We would take something that was meant to be wild and sharp and hard-hitting, something that was not able to be controlled, and we find ways to tame it, to domesticate it to make it familiar, such that sermons and the content of the Bible becomes, like I said last week, more sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher. And we got to break through that, and the Sermon on the Mount helps us by reminding us as to what real righteousness is. Now last week I also suggested to you that you could think of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as the ethics of grace. The ethics of grace, that's an important phrase. Because I don't want you to think that the Sermon on the Mount is somehow a new law in the same way that the Old Testament law was given. But rather, it's the ethics of grace, which means that what Jesus is advocating here are the kind of character qualities, the kind of um, acts of obedience that come from a heart that's been invaded by the reign of Jesus, by the reign of God. The heart that has been invaded by the kingdom of heaven. So what you're seeing here in the Sermon on the Mount is not a new law, but rather the overflow of what happens when Jesus comes and takes control. That when he comes, his reign and his rule looks like poverty of spirit. It looks like taking sin seriously. It looks like refusing to insist on my rights. It means having the right desires, that I now have this appetite, this hunger, this yearning for righteousness that I know that I wouldn't have apart from him. And the beautiful thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it calls us to embrace the reality of what Jesus does in us. So for instance, like the uh, having the right desires, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, there's this sense that I wouldn't have these appetites, I wouldn't have this desire if it wasn't for you. And so there is this joyful sense of everything that I desire is only because of you, and I want more of you, and the more I know of you, the more I want of you. That being satisfied with Jesus means that you want more of Him, not like, oh, I've had enough of Jesus. 
You see, the beautiful thing about heaven is that we're going to see him as he is, and you will never bore of knowing more about him. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness means that we we live in this kind of schizophrenic perspective that on the one hand we know that there's no way that this hunger and thirsting thing could happen apart from Him and at the same time there is this yearning for more of it. So I know this is from you and I want more of it. And that's how all of these Beatitudes go. The first four Beatitudes acknowledge the way in which God had invaded the heart the way in which he has created these spiritual characteristics, the way in which this God has invaded with his reign and now produced things like poverty of spirit and mourning over sin. And and these first four were how we relate to God. The next four Beatitudes, these ethics of grace, talk about how we relate to other people. So if the first ethics of grace, deal with how we relate to God. These next four tell us how we are to live with others in the world. How we are to demonstrate the reign of God such that people will look at us and go, there's something different about you. And the joyful conclusion by the evidence of our lives would be, you're right, there is something different about me. It's that I live for the glory of God. I live to make much of this invasion of my heart because there's nothing good within me. It's only because of Jesus. And that is what the Beatitudes and this entire sermon are all about. The way in which our lives, having been invaded by grace, make much of the beautiful God who's made that invasion possible. So, let's look at these next four. What does it mean to relate to people? And how are we to do that? What do the ethics of grace look like with others? Well, the first one we see is in verse 7. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The word mercy means compassion in action. It's not just feelings where you feel bad for somebody, or you have emotions, or you feel sorry for them. No, mercy is more than that. It includes that, but it's primarily focused on actions. It it means that you take a step to relieve the suffering of another. You you don't just stand there and watch. You do something. You, You treat somebody with a kindness that they don't deserve. It means that you have a generous attitude towards other people because you've tasted of God's mercy. So the whole thing that Jesus is telling us here in relationship to people is that our relationship with God fundamentally alters how we see the world and therefore fundamentally alters how we deal with people. And there is this direct connection between loving God and loving others. That those who have tasted of God's mercy have a joyful desire to extend mercy out to others. It's that they see people through this lens of mercy and compassion in action. It means, mercy, to be generous towards others in your attitude. It means that you are unwilling to quickly take an offense or to gloat over the shortcomings of others. See, being merciful means that you know that everyone's a sinner, including you. So you see somebody that does something really dumb, and instead of looking at them and going, wow, what an idiot, why'd you do that? You see someone and you're like, oh, I've done that like 40 million times, right? That when you see them, you see yourself, that rather than seeing other people's inadequacies, you see their one inadequacy, and all you can do is think about how incredibly inadequate you are. The reverse of that is thinking that you're something big and, and really impressive, and so everybody else and in their inadequacies just makes you look all the grander. 
And that's not the heart of someone who's been invaded by grace. It means that we treat people with the same graciousness with which God has treated us. That we live under this beautiful banner of God has been so merciful to me and I just love mercy. You need to understand that mercy was and is a central part of Jesus' message. Hear me, hear me carefully, College Park. The absence of mercy, the absence of mercy is a chief characteristic of superficial religion. The absence of mercy is a chief characteristic of superficial religion. Why? Because people who are guilty of superficial religion think that people get what they deserve. I get blessing because I deserve it. I, I'm, I'm righteous. Look at me. All the stuff that I know and how, how God must be blessed because of me being in His kingdom. And that's just completely backwards. It is that we realize that we are the recipients of God's infinite mercy and therefore we, it is our aim in life to be merciful to others because we are entranced with the beautiful reality of how God has been merciful to us. Jesus was all over the Pharisees' case when it came to mercy. Look at a couple things he said. Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is said in the context where Jesus is hanging out with some sinful people. And the Pharisees come to his disciples and like, check out your master. He's hanging out with sinners. What's the deal? And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, you can take your knowledge, you can take your external righteousness. That's not what I'm about. I'm about mercy. Matthew 12, 7. Jesus said, if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and sacrifice and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And then in chapter 23 of Matthew, in a scathing, I mean scathing rebuke of the Pharisees, over and over, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, so they tithe in the most intricate little things that they grow, and and and, and mints and herbs and spices, they're, they're tithing on that, and they're, they're counting a tenth, okay, one leaf, two leaf, three leaf, four leaf, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, that's God's leaf, they're, they're tithing little leaves on herbs, and Jesus says, and you're missing the weightier measures of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, the characteristic of superficial religion is a failure to realize that people who have received mercy then need to demonstrate that mercy in the world in which they live. And that's why the Bible says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Listen, people who know, who really know God's mercy are merciful And the Bible says they receive mercy from God. In other words, later on we'll see that Jesus will warn us, if you aren't concerned about the least of these, then there's no way that you really even know him. Jesus sees mercy as the natural response to receiving mercy from God. If you've really tasted God's mercy, you will be merciful. And let me tell you, if you embrace a perspective of mercy and you enter your your world this afternoon and Monday, go throughout your week, and you just look, God, give me opportunities to be merciful, you will stand out like a clear light that you're meant to be. Because our culture is not attuned to mercy. You will stand out, remarkably so. 
A few nights ago, I was trying to pull out in traffic. I was in another city. It was in South Bend, Indiana. And I was waiting. It was construction. There's all these cars going through. And there I was two cars. I was the second car in line. And the right, the light turned red, then green, then red, then green. And I was waiting. I thought, this is how in the world am I ever going to get out of here? And this um, guy pulled up. And the guy in front of me uh, pulled. He let him out. And so I expected, as is common, that he's only going to let one car. So I'm going to pull up. And then the next nice saved guy in South Bend, Indiana is going to do the same. But no, he waited and, and had two cars. It's like, whoa, oh, righteous man, righteous man. He had two cars. And I said to my wife, did you see that? Did you see that? That guy had two cars. I was, like, I was like so overjoyed. I'm like, look at him. See how old he is. And she looked because I'm thinking there's no way it's an 18-year-old kid. There's no way, right? Nothing against 18-year-olds. Don't send me an email or put some on my Facebook. But, but sure enough, you know what it was? It was a senior citizen. And my guess, I don't know if the guy's religious belief, I don't know anything about him, but my guess is he's not in a hurry He's seen throughout life that it doesn't really matter if you let two extra cars in, and he knows at the end of the day what really matters is he can put his head in the pillow at night and go, I let two cars in today. (laughs) You may think that's a small thing, but you know what? Start letting two cars in and see what happens. You will get people waving at you like, oh, they'll be bowing, and oh, you're so great. Mercy says something powerful because we don't live in a merciful world. The next time you go to a fast food place, when the person says, Hi, welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? After you order, tell them, you know what? You are doing a great job today. Most people don't say that to folks like that. Or you travel on an airplane. You, you, that, uh, that person who checks you in, everyone else, always, the people think that they're there to yell at them when they're frustrated. You just go up to them and tell them, you know what? You are doing a phenomenal job today. God bless you. You, they, 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 they will be stunned. Your mercy can be dangerous. It shocks the heart. Because mercy is not normal in our culture. Get ahead, cutthroat, climb the ladder or, or anybody else you can. Think of yourself. That's, that's the air we breathe. So to be merciful, boy, that implies there's something different. There's something different about you. The second character quality is the pure in heart. This is not a new thought that Jesus brings. It's an old one. Psalm chapter 24, verse 3 says this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So so what is Psalm 24 about? It's about ascending to the hill. That's talking about going up to worship. And what the psalmist is saying, who can go up to worship? Who can go into God's presence? Who can come and really glorify Him? The answer, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, I take see God to mean not like I literally see God, but I'm able to worship Him. That blessed are the pure in heart because they are true worshipers. So the pure in heart means that God has radically reoriented and changed my heart. He has created an internal consistency between who I am on the inside and who I am on the outside, such that I am a true worshiper of God. So pure in heart means this. It refers to internal integrity that manifests itself on the outside. In other words, God doesn't like hypocrites either. God doesn't like people who come in and sing songs about Him, but whose hearts are far from Him. 
And what Jesus is advocating here is the kind of perspective on life where you know that God has radically changed the internal workings of my heart such that the outside of my life matches the inside. And again, this is the kind of spirituality that Jesus is advocating and the kind of spirituality he gets all over the Pharisees' case about when their outside looks great, but their inside is full of junk. Listen to what Jesus says. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Man, that's a funny thing to say. Because the idea is they're like, and they're, I got a little bug in my mouth, while they're consuming a two-humped camel at the same time. He's like, you strain out these little things like tithing dill and mint and cumin, and, and, and you don't realize that you are neglecting these enormous issues like mercy. I mean, you're so concerned about the jot and the tittle and the little areas of obedience, and you don't even think about the fact that you don't have consistent lives. How you live on the outside is different than who you are on the inside. Jesus said this, Matthew 23, 25, You clean the outside of the cup, but inwardly you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Matthew 23, 27, You appear outwardly righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what is Jesus calling out here? He's calling out the kind of hypocritical, superficial religion where the outside doesn't match the inside. He's calling positively for a purity of the heart that begins on the inside and then results in right relationships with people on the outside. He's saying that the invasion of his kingdom into the lives of the followers of Jesus will so radically change their hearts that the result will be the actions on the outside of their lives will flow from a heart that's right with God. Well, let me put it to you this way. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, he warned that murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander all come out of the heart. And notice that all those things he just listed, all those things have direct effects on other people. And he says that those direct affecting sins like adultery and theft and immorality, lying and slander, all that stuff comes out. It comes out of a heart. And what Jesus is saying is that Impure hearts hurt people, but those who are pure in heart are real worshipers and they treat others with a consistent God-centered kindness and righteousness because their hearts have been changed. So here's the news. The gospel, if you don't know what the gospel is or what the Bible's all about or what the cross of Jesus Christ really does, here's what the cross does. For those of you who are still trying to figure out what's Christianity mean, how does this all work, here's the thing. Your heart, my heart, is the problem. That's the biggest problem in life. It's not the things that I do. That's the fruit of the stuff that's on the inside. And the Bible says there's no way that I can change my heart. I can't do that. The only one who can change my heart and cleanse me from the inside out is Jesus. That's why he died, so he could take your heart and transform it. And all your efforts to try and stop the immorality, to change the lying, to stop the slander, to do all these external things are never going going to work unless you get to the source of where that junk is coming from and where that stuff is coming from is your heart and Jesus died for heart problems that's the kingdom that Jesus changes us on the inside so when somebody says something that's really rude have you heard that this week someone says something really rude and we say oh I can't believe you said that what we really mean is I can't believe you said that 
out loud. That's what we mean. Because we know, oh yeah, I've so wanted to say that, but I just didn't dare. That's uh, like so sinful, I'm glad you did it. You know, so there's this, there's this sense that, that our, we know how wicked our hearts are. And that the stuff that comes out, does just happen? Like, oops. Oops, that was bubbling there. It's a heart burp. It's there, bleh, it just comes out. That's a new thought. Never said that before. My first book's going to be titled Heart Burp. How about that? Seven strategies for winning the war with your heart. Okay, so number three, peacemaker. Peacemaker, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. All right, the next quality produced in a kingdom-invaded heart is peacemaking. Now, Peace is supposed to be the hallmark of what the Messiah would bring. So when a Jewish person thought about what the Messiah would eventually bring, that he would bring peace, which is why, even today, if you go to Israel and you greet somebody, what's the greeting? Shalom. That word shalom, folks, is so meaningful. It, it It means rest. It means contentment. It means... Everything is the way it's supposed to be. It, it, it means there's no turmoil, there's no stress. It means just beautiful, God-centered rest. There's a physical peace and there's a spiritual peace. On, on the physical side, it just means that oh, we're at rest, like God rested. A few weeks from now, my family will be vacationing in northern Indiana on a camping trip, and, and I'm dreaming, thinking, planning, and scheming for the moments of shalom for me. <laughs> you know, it, I, I told you before what it is. It's the early morning before my kids get up, a small little fire in the campfire, a canvas chair, the birds chirping, all quiet, my newspaper, and my Bible. Right? Okay, both of those. And, and there I am, and it's just quiet. It's like shalom, peace. It's, it's what you feel like when your kids finally go to bed. You know, we're in that new stage of life where our kids don't go to bed before us. And it's like, we've lost shalom. <laughs> Where's our shalom? Oh. But it also means that there's this spiritual peace. It means that there's this sense of, I'm right with God. In the New Testament, the concept of peace builds on the Old Testament peace in that peace, arene, in the Greek, means that I'm right with God. And, and the beautiful thing about combining the Old Testament shalom and the New Testament arene, put those together, it means that you've got this rightness with God that's combined with personal rest, and, and, and that's what is longed for. And, and peace is the heart of what God aims to bring through the person and work of Jesus. So, so peace is a really important concept, and it's not new to the world But Jesus says that the peace that he brings is going to be a different kind of peace. He tells us that his peace is a peace that nobody else can bring. Why? Because his peace is a peace to the soul. It's a cleansing of the conscience. It's a rest for the heart. And it means that people who experience God's peace know that it surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. It's the peace of knowing that I'm a new creature. That the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's peace. 
It means the old Mark Rogup is gone and the new one has come and there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that I know that I am right with my Creator. And then notice the implication of this. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does this mean? It means, beloved, that if you know what God's peace is all about, then your mission in this world is to take that peace and show the world what that peace is like. The reason that this is your charge is because you of all people know that the ultimate cause of all conflict is sin. And you also know what you're supposed to do about it. So we of all people know the cause of conflict and what we're supposed to do about it. And therefore the Bible calls us to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Oh, please, not peace breakers. And oh, even more so, not peace fakers. We are to be peacemakers. We know how breaking of peace comes and why conflict exists because of sin. And we also know what to do about it. And therefore we ought to be in the business of making peace. When Sarah and I, before we got married, we had some great premarital counseling in the church that we were attending when we were seniors in college at Cedarville. And I remember going to this premarital counseling with with kind of a loaded agenda. Because honestly, I was scared about getting married. See, I had known some folks who I thought were pretty respectable Christians and their marriages had fallen apart. And that made me really nervous. Because I thought, my goodness, if these respectable, God-honoring people can't make it in marriage. I mean, I know me. How are, I thought I knew them. How, how am I going to be able to make it? And the first principle that we learned in our premarital counseling was a, a lift to my soul and such a hope. And it was this, is that a Christian home is not a place where perfect people live. And that was liberating. Awesome. So I don't have to be perfect to have a good marriage. Rather, it is a place, a Christian home is a place, listen, where sinners live, but they know what to do about their sin. That's the difference. So a Christian home is not a place where perfect people have to live. It's a place that everybody in the house knows that we're all sinners. We all know that. But we know what to do about our sin, that our homes are a place of real peace, real forgiveness, real reconciliation, because Christ makes it possible for real peace to come. So dads, on this Father's Day, could I issue a charge and lay something on the mantle of your leadership and on your shoulders? Dads, I charge you to be known as the kind of men in your home who labor hard to keep and make peace. The kind of men... No, we don't have to all be perfect here. But we all know what to do about our sin and to model that. I want to call you today, every one of us, to be known as a peacemaker in your home. To be known as the peacemaker in your neighborhood. Let other people turn in your neighbors because of their covenant violations, okay? You be the peacemaker. Be known as the peacemaker on the road, in the drive-thru, with your family, with your friends, with your co-workers, and even with your enemies. Be peacemakers with those who treat you fairly, and when you do, the light and the glory of God will shine through you so radically. There's something about being a peacemaker that just, it resonates with people's hearts. And it, it sets you apart. It, it, people will stop and notice 
those who strive to make peace. A couple years ago, I was on on an airplane, and for whatever reason, there's something about putting 300 people in a small metal tube and putting them at 30,000 feet that just brings out the worst in them, isn't it? I mean, one of my things that when I do when I travel is I just try and find as many ways as I possibly can to be helpful and to be merciful and to be a peacemaker. Because I just see a lot of people when I'm traveling who their sole aim is just to tick everybody off. That just seems like, I mean, they're, they're, they're finding their luggage and they're cramming their luggage in and, you know, and, and this, this poor family that came in and, and they had a newborn and so dad was, you know, bringing the, um, the baby seat on the airplane and it's like getting caught in the seats and things like that. He's trying to balance, they got all this luggage and they're sweating and they finally sit down only to realize that their seats are separated. And by now the baby's starting to cry and, um, you know, everyone in the plane is just like, oh no, long flight, baby crying. And then she's on the window and he's like four seats over on the other aisle in a window seat. They're like, you know, 10 feet apart. So the steward is seeing this, comes up to the guy seated next to the mom with the crying baby, and he says, she says to him, Sir, um, this woman and this husband here, um, this is their baby, and as you can see, the baby's crying. And I'd like to know, would you mind switching from your aisle seat to this seat over here? And he said, No, I think I'm going to stay here. Yeah, and the whole plane did what you just did. They're like, oh, Dirty rat. I mean, they're like... I mean, it was like, you gotta be kidding. And I think part of it was their own self-interest. Like, dude, that baby's gonna cry the whole time. What are you nuts? And then another part of it was like, are you so insensitive? And so everyone was like, oh, and I'm sitting in the back going, whoa, what's gonna happen here, you know? And then a couple who heard the conversation about two aisles back, who were seated right next to each other, happy as a lark to be sitting there, they both got up and they said, oh, ma'am, um, we have these two seats over here. We'll take their seats far apart and this couple can have ours. And the whole plane was like, whoa, no! They're all, all happy. And this couple, I mean, this, the, the beautiful kindness that expressed, you know, through their lives was, was evident. I don't know if they were believers or not, but they sure acted like it. Well, well, the stewardess was so impressed with their actions that she, she came back after the plane got up with the flight and brought back to them a, a beautiful array of uh, coupons when they got to the airport. And thank you for your kindness. And she's back here like two rows and this dirty rat guy's up two more. And, and I'm telling you, I, I, I swear she was doing this. Thank you for your kindness and, uh, <laughs> Here's here's a $50 gift certificate to the store. And she's just, and I was like, she's putting it to him. So listen, I don't want to ever hear that any member of College Park Church is the dirty rat who won't give up a seat in an airplane, okay? I will find you, and you will get a personal sermon, and those aren't fun, Okay? I want you to be the kind of people that instead are, are, are peacemakers, that you see the reality of what it could it mean if you could evidence the way in which you think of others as more important than yourselves, and you find ways to resolve conflict. So enter the world this afternoon and Monday and go make peace. Make peace at Burger King and McDonald's and Bravo. Go make peace on the road on 465 when it's traffic jam. Make peace at your office. Make peace in your neighborhood. Make peace at Target with your kids when you're shopping and they're not obeying. Make peace. And when you do, the Bible says you will be called the sons of God. Why? Because people will look at you and say, there is something different about you people. And especially do that with people who are your enemies. Now that's hard to do. With people who don't like you, people who talk negatively about you, 
And to those people, Jesus says this regarding being persecuted, blessed are those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus acknowledges that we are going to experience suffering and persecution for righteousness. Why? Because righteous people make unrighteous people uncomfortable. So here's an interesting question. Do you make anybody uncomfortable by your righteousness? Because here's what Jesus said. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus doesn't call us to be popular, adored, or admired by the world. He calls us to be radically God-centered and righteous such that sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. He's calling us to a radical love for Him that creates the kind of conflict that Jesus experienced in His world. Jesus says that this is part of what it means to be approved. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. So, the question is, how often has my righteousness, how often has your righteousness created the kind of pushback that we should get from the world. And if we don't get that pushback, the question is, are we righteous enough? So living by these ethics of grace ultimately leads to a life that is counter-cultural. And what it means is that following Jesus emulates these values and ethics and actions that are consistent with the kingdom, and the result is that it's different than the rest of society. And Jesus calls this difference being salt and light in the next verses. He identifies that being salt and light, along in the context of persecution, is to be viewed through a different lens. And I want to suggest to you that you view these hard moments when they come, when, when you're going to do like what we sang a little bit ago, I am not ashamed, I'm not ashamed of his name. When those moments come, how do you determine that, yes, I'm going to name his name? Well, Jesus would advocate here embracing what it means for joy to be in the forefront of our minds and also seeing the opportunity for witness. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Luke 6 says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. He says, rejoice and leap for joy. Woohoo! Persecuted. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. Now, why does he use reward? Matthew, over and over, uses reward as part of the motivation for following Jesus. He has no problem with linking the reward with following Christ. And the reason is, is that Matthew wants you to know that every time you do something for Christ that results in loss, the good that Jesus will bring eventually far outweighs the loss you experience now. So Jesus means by referring to the reward to use it as the thing that will triumph over that thought, I can't do this, the cost will be too great. And Matthew would say rejoice and be glad because your reward is far beyond what you can dream. 
In other words, Jesus is saying that there is nothing suffered or lost in this lifetime that is a waste. Listen, every time you take a stand for Jesus and something bad happens, or it's costly, or you're, you're reviled in some way, know that it is never a waste. In fact, Jesus even says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you in verse 12. Meaning, there's a lot of people who wear this badge. And now it's your role to wear it in your culture. So persecution then brings an opportunity for joy. To be able to say, yes, once again I demonstrate that I don't live for this world. I don't live for what you think of me. Yes, I live for what you think of me. And that's what persecution does. It reminds us, you don't live for the approval of others. You don't live for the affirmation of the world. You don't live to be popular. You don't live to have people think well of you. You live for the glory of Christ. And then he says it's an opportunity for witness. He describes it here as salt and light. Salt was useful because it was a preservative. It prevented decay. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. Meaning that your righteousness in a real way serves as a substantive preservative in life, culture, and society. Jesus calls his followers a preservative in life or a moral antiseptic. Jesus envisions his followers bringing a measure of the kingdom with them into every arena in which they enter. So what happens is that Jesus invades the heart, and then his followers invade the culture. That means that wherever you live or work or play, you are there as a preserving agent in our land. Therefore, God calls you not just to be a police officer or a businessman or a sales consultant or a teacher, God calls you to be a follower of Jesus who happens to be a a policeman, a sales consultant, a a manager of a business, a, a student in college, professor at a college. He calls you to take these things that you do and use the kingdom of Christ in you to be a preserving, witnessing agent. Jesus envisions that cultural transformation comes as Jesus invading people, or Jesus invaded people rather, bring the power of the gospel to bear on their community. That means that you are sent to the marketplace to be the most merciful, peacemaking, kind, God-loving person that your co-workers know. That your presence in the office brings a measure of the kingdom there. And that's why when believers fight When marriages dissolve, when churches split, the world looks at that and says, "Uh uh-huh, that's what I thought. The second opportunity for witness is described as being light in the world. Jesus describes them with the same figure of speech that he uses for himself. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world, implying that the world is in darkness, and Jesus now wants us to be those who are distinguishable from the rest of the world. In fact, we go and we bring light to a dark world. And so Jesus, to make this even clearer, tells us about the value of light. He says, nobody puts a light under a basket. Or as Don, when he read the passage, you hear him? He said, bushel. (laughs) He's so intoxicated with children's ministry, he can't read the ESV without singing the song. (laughs) I love that. He's got, hide it under a basket. No, hide it under a bolt. No, hide it under a what? Bushel. Answer? No. Now that's, 
One of the reasons that I love our children's ministry department is because they teach my kids these great classic kids songs. So we're traveling down the road and I hear Savannah in the back seat singing, No, that's all she knows. She's got the no part. I'm like, yeah, all right, she's got that. But you know, that little, that little song, that's not just some cheesy little song that kids sing. Listen, what that is saying is I will not be ashamed of the gospel. When the enemy tempts me to take the light of the transforming work of the kingdom and to hide it, put it under a bushel, the answer from my mouth and my heart has to be what? No. Hide it under a bushel? What? No. When I go in the marketplace and the enemy says, don't you talk about him, the answer is what? No. That it's no, no, no. I will not cap the light of the gospel. Instead, I will put this baby on a lampstand and let the world see it. Why? Here's why. So that the world will know that what happens in us has nothing to do with us. Look what Jesus says. So that, verse 16, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The ultimate aim here, folks, is so that people would look at our lives and go, what is so different about you people? We hold the light up, we say, no, we're not going to cap it, we're going to let it shine, so that people, when they see our lives, will know, yes, there is something radically different about me, and it is not me. It is that Jesus has invaded my heart and transformed my soul, and anything good that you see coming from me is only because of Him, and therefore my life exists so that God can be glorified. Here, then, is the driving ethic behind the ethics of grace. Here is the reason for the Beatitudes. Here is the reason that God invades hearts. Here's the reason why God's approval rests upon people. Here's the reasons why repentance and meekness and humility and hungering for righteousness and mercy and purity and peacemaking and joyful endurance are a part of the equation. Here is the purpose for being salt in life. Here's the ultimate purpose in Jesus' life. And the ultimate reason for getting real is to be able to glorify God. That the ultimate end of all life is to be able to glorify Him and getting real is part of that. Superficial Christianity only communicates to the world, you don't want this. But getting real says, you need to meet the God that has transformed my soul. And if we can show them this, that God is the most compelling thing in all of the universe then we will have fulfilled the mission for which Jesus has invaded our hearts. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. That's what we live to declare. That is the ethics of grace. Getting real is a call to see that there's nothing greater, nothing more enjoyable, and nothing more satisfying than living for the glory of God. And mercy and purity and peacemaking and joy and persecution are meant to platform the beautiful reality of lives that are lived for one purpose, to make much of the glory of God. So when your heart or the enemy tempts you to take this light and to squelch it, Sing that song with abandonment and rough zeal. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. You sing that. 
and sing it with deep conviction because that is the reason why we are here. Father in heaven, oh, help us as your children to not be ashamed of the gospel. And so to be merciful, to be peacemaking kind of people, to be filled with all the fullness of Christ and to be able to demonstrate that into the world. I pray, Lord, that Monday morning would be different for our people, that they would love the unlovely. I pray for some who would love their enemies, who'd find a way to reach out to the person who they're initially uncomfortable with, and they will find a way to make peace. As much as lies within them, that they would be able to live at peace with all men. So Lord, I pray that you would increase our capacity, not only for knowing you, but for loving you. And Lord, that you would pour out your grace so that with people and with hardship, that we could platform the beautiful reality of who you are to a watching world. could be this morning that you're here while you're still in an attitude of prayer and everyone just has their head bowed and their eyes closed. It could be that you're here today and you come to the realization that you need to receive Christ, that your heart is the essence of the problem. So you know, after our service, there'll be some folks up here willing to pray with you, some of our counseling staff. Today could be the day that you could decide, you know what, Jesus, take my, take, take my heart, transform it. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, but there's some significant people in your life that you need to love that God just has specifically placed on you. It seems like an impossible task. Or maybe nobody in your family even knows you're a Christian, and that's got to change. There'll be some folks up here who'd love to pray for you. And if you're a first-time visitor, our um, coffee talk tent is outside. We'd love to be able to meet you. I'll be there in just a few minutes. We'd love just to be able to get to know you a bit. At the end of the day, what we're here at College Park for is to ignite in you, by the power of the Spirit of God and the Word, a passion to follow Jesus. Listen, there's nothing greater than that. Therefore, when our heart says, hide this under a bushel, our answer is what? No. That's right. And so, Lord, let that be our benediction. Hide it under a bushel? No. No, 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 no. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Love you guys. Have a great day.